Hello and welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor of CIO. The term best practice is certainly one of the most misused in business and technology circles today. Times one wonders whether it's become almost a euphemism for never mind the details and nothing to see here. Or some of the most ill-fated plans can be conceived with the best or best practice intentions. To sensible minds at least, the term has a very specific meaning, implying at least a collection of tasks that improve ideally that maximise the efficiency or effectiveness of the core business and or process that supports it. Best practice should also be something that's able to be executed as well as being replicable, transferable and adaptable across industries. But as you'll hear in this episode, the term best practice is losing its currency and indeed its relevance as organisations adjust to the new realities of doing business today with greater agility and ingenuity and in particular given the large number of massive failures that continue to occur with alarming regularity. Joining me now, uh, Rowan Dollar, who's a partner with Public Sector Consulting, an organisation working with government organisations across Australia on IT strategy and architecture, and also Louise Francis, who's the country manager with IDC New Zealand. Welcome both of you back to the CIO Show. Thank you. Good to be here. Rowan, as someone who's been around the CIO traps for a while, and let's face it, who doesn't pull any punches when it comes to anything that smacks of management speak, what's your take on best practice in 2021? I'm not convinced that it exists, David, yeah. uh, frankly. I think, uh, you know, best practice is something that's used to, in fact, hold industry back and hold the private sector and, and government IT back. You know, I, I think about, uh, you know, the Olympics. No one would be going for a, a gold medal if they everyone decided, well, the world record's already been done. We can't do any better than that. That's and a good think, analogy, yeah. I think that's where best practice comes in, you know, uh, it, it, it holds people back. And the other thing that it does is, as I mentioned to you earlier, the plausible deniability. And that is, well, I follow best practice and it broke, so it's not my fault. Sorry about that. And I don't think that's uh, ideal for, for industry or business. And yeah. that's that's where I come from, best practice. I, I think it's it's something that's used by the, the big vendors to, you know, fill in a contract and, and put you know, pat out a proposal, frankly, you know, if you ask any of them what it means, I don't think they'd be able to tell you. And uh, as I said, it, it, you know, in the in the 21st century, when we're all about, you know, improving, whether that be improving our processes, improving efficiency or improving the customer experience, having anything that's a, a roadblock that holds us back is not a great idea as far as I'm concerned. So you think it's it's something that's even stifling innovation? I think it's absolutely stifling innovation. You know, in a, uh, most most IT teams are, are, are find it difficult to innovate in the first place, and they're they're all all well and good at keeping the lights on, but it's very difficult for them to innovate. And there's a number of reasons for that. None the least of which is you know this kind of trying to, to to keep up to the standards and keep up with the Joneses. We don't want to keep up with the Joneses, i.e., best practice. We want to exceed that. We want to keep doing better and better and better. And the, the good, you know, in the my my peers and in the in the top 50 CIOs in the country all are trying to get their teams to do better and better and better every year. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you've been following it as I know you have, the, the top 50 CIOs, every year the race gets stronger and stronger and stronger. That should be what IT and in fact business looks like across this country. Uh, without innovation, we're in we're in serious trouble. What's your take on that, Louise? I mean, you, your take on best practice is perhaps uh, relatively restrained compared to Rowan's, but I mean, do you see it as something that, that can potentially 
get in the way of innovation, get in the way of agility? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and that's something that we're hearing a lot more from CIOs that we talk to. I think the analogy that, that Rowan gave is, is spot on. When we were talking to a CIO who is considered a digital innovator and a digital transform, transformation expert, and we talked about, you know, what are the best practices that, that your organization is following? And his response was, we don't follow best practice because best practice implies that you, you aren't at the top of your game. You're not ahead of the rest of the pack. And it would hold us back if we followed best practice. It holds back innovation in our organization. That aspect is right on. And um, it can be a good process for those who are starting out, going into a new area, that maybe they're creating new products or services, mm. and they want to get a launching pad. So they're trying to get a starting thing. In that case, best practice is probably a good idea. So thinking about something such as, talked about security, but talking about airlines, for example, you wouldn't want an airline to be, you know, just going out on a limb and just trying stuff. You would want them to be following best practice when it came to the engineering processes, yeah. um, because that's that's been tri tried and tested. But if you're, if you're an organization that's trying to get ahead and be seen as innovative, then you're going to be, want, you're going to want to be the ones who are, setting the best practice. So you'll be the ones who are seen as leaders and that's where we see the changes. I think it, it is very dependent on the industry as well. So industries which are quite conservative, for example, you don't want banks going off and doing their own thing. You do want them to follow some sort of a best practice to a certain extent. But then you have some of the, like the neo banks starting to come in, um, open banking, open finance, open insurance, and, you know, they're setting up, you know, the new rules um, about what that actually looks like. So you're going to find it, it is going to be along industry lines what best practice looks like, but also it's going to be what best practice doesn't look like in the future. So, Louise, it's almost as though we're talking about there's still a need for something that is equivalent to best practice, whether we're still using that term in the future, that almost operate like guardrails. Yeah, and that's, that's definitely something that we've, we've talked quite a bit about is set up the guide rails or the guardrails for, for innovation. So it is, it's a looser form of best practice in terms of we know these are the parameters of what we, we can work within and then providing the flexibility within those guardrails. So you might bounce around a bit, but those guardrails will keep you on track where it's to do with innovation, but making sure that you are following processes that are, are effective, they're, they're efficient, but without restricting or hindering the innovation that might take place in the organisation. And Rowan, in the, the term itself is does seem somewhat ambitious in hindsight, given how much failure we've seen uh, and some spectacular failure, right? Well, there, there has, and, and um, I think a precursor for some of the the, uh, the biggest failures in the last 12 months or two years has been me um, getting an invitation to come on the CIO show. Um, I think last <laughs> time, um, I can't remember who it was that fell over last time, but uh, we had Facebook and Instagram fall over this week. Uh, I, I just sit back and think in the 21st century, how are we having those major failures, whether it be across a, a telco network or a, a, you know, a supply chain or whatever it is. And I think part of it comes out of 
that we've forgotten what redundancy and resilient resilience means yeah. in, a, in a networking kind of context. And that is having kind of two of everything really. Um, so that if you if prod one falls over, you've still got prod two. Um, now the banks banks did that for years and years and years. Um, they really they, they off I wouldn't say off, but they had big failures, but the client the customers didn't notice because prod two would kick in and and was business as usual. Yeah. Generally speaking. Um, now, if you look back over the last five or 10 years, let's just say, oh, I don't know, arguably since the GFC, mm. and we seem to be having more of these big failures. And, you know, it's always, again, it gets back to that plausible deniability. So it's not our fault, it's the DNS system, yeah. um, which tells me that some our change hasn't been tested properly. I think part of the challenge that we're now facing is, that, is, a, is an outcome of the GFC that I mentioned, and that is that we um, almost allowed the accountants to take over. At the time, justifiable attempt to cut costs of doing business, we sat back and started reducing budgets at the same time. So the first thing that gets cut is the second um, data center. The first thing that gets cut is the second part of the network, the resilience and the redundancy goes, because that's just twice the price, right? You need two routers instead of one. Um, you need two data centers instead of one. And, you know, I know that there are lots of organisations around that are running on one data centre and they say, we've got resiliency, we've got resiliency. No, not really. You've only got one data centre. So there's a, there's a real problem. And, and that's why we're starting to see some of the supply chain challenges now. It's why we're, we're starting to see some of the cyber issues that we see and some of these, these major outages. And I think that we're now getting a group of, you know, they're probably in their 10 or 12 years of their career in IT and they don't know how to build redundant networks because they've never had to do it because it yeah. hasn't been done in the time they've been in the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think one thing that about a resilient organization is it's about being able to be adaptive to the changing conditions. And um, I mean, if you're talking about best practice, if best practice is something that was set about two years ago, given what we've seen in the last couple of years and gone through, those best practices are probably not as relevant anymore. It's best practices not to be, you know, cautious and conservative in your approach. It is about um, creating the resilience and that resilience is through being agile, but it's also being, being willing to change, to willing to, to challenge the status quo, to look at those best practices and say, are, are they still fit for purpose? Do we, do we need to make changes and if, if you if the answer is no you're probably not looking at the right things you're probably not understanding how the the changes of what's happening in the industry is is going to affect you yeah sure and we can also talk about cyber david and simply say that you know a decade ago to take um louise's point a little bit further a decade ago there probably wasn't a single board or board member that had a cybersecurity kpi in their in their contracts with the business and now every board every board and every board member should do at least now know what cybersecurity is and and that's a big change from 10 years ago um, a change from two years ago is every cfo now knows what teams and zoom is whereas two years ago most of the business didn't know and didn't care we enable any organization to use any technology we help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers, connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation.
And Louise, two, two industries in particular that we've discussed recently are uh, manufacturing and and retail. To your point about you know what what the experiences of the past two years have demanded from those organisations in terms of resilience and agility in, in their networks. So what are your observations there in those sectors in particular? Yeah, I, I think some of them have been you know a bit slow to come to the game um, when it comes to to resiliency, and this has sort of been a real push towards creating that in both industries and supply chain in, in particular. I mean listening to media in recent weeks and months about the pressures on the supply chain. This is continuing, you know, we're 18 months into COVID-19 crisis in Australia and New Zealand, and, and yet we're still seeing the same supply chain issues that we were seeing 18 months ago. Is that because um, they, they're not creating resiliency? We're seeing smart uh, manufacturers and, and retailers starting to look at things such as supply chain uh, control towers. They're looking mm, at mm. increasing their visibility um, so they're looking at, you know, th this might be best practice around supply chains two years ago, but with the, the chaos and the disruption that's happening in supply chains today, those are no longer relevant. Those are being thrown out the window. So, you know, what are you doing to ensure that you can make very quick decision making? What are you doing around reducing the number of errors and disruptions? Thinking about the ship that was caught in the Suez Canal, the smart retailers, the smart manufacturers, that had that supply chain um, visibility were able to understand that they had stock, they had inventory on that ship. It was going to affect um, this part of their process. It was going to affect these parts of the businesses and they could quickly divert because they, they had this diverse supply chain. So if one link in the supply chain went down, they could quickly pivot to a, a new link in the supply chain and get goods in. So um, I think... That is an area that in particular is probably one of the slowest to change um, in terms of shifting from best practice, but I think they're learning very, very fast. And, and the healthcare sector, no doubt as well, I should have mentioned them, in a, a completely different world for CIOs operating in that space. Yeah, healthcare and education, um, you know, just thinking education. about those, you know, it's a very traditional, very service driven around built around best practice so thinking about education in particular with remote learning that's been a real challenge for for educators around the world and you know some are embracing it and looking at new ways of doing things you know they're, they're throwing the rule book out the window around best practice and you know we, we are starting to see some changes we're seeing changes in that attitude towards virtual learning but I think there's still quite a long way to go yeah, sure. You mentioned agility when obviously, you know, being in CIO, we've discussed agility. We've done a podcast on the subject. Rowan, do you see best practices maybe being an almost a sort of hangover term from the, the waterfall methodologies that we're now discussing as, as perhaps being less useful these days? Um, I guess it depends on what your appropriate use case. I think an agile, you know, a capital A agile methodology has uses. You know, if you're building software, for example, I think it's, it's a great, you know, great idea, great way of working. Um, if you're building battleships or perhaps submarines, then maybe not so. You know, we'll, get, so we'll get into submarines later. That's an interesting yeah. topic. <laughs> I, I think uh, you know having a, a waterfall approach is is, a, is about right. I think part of the problem that we bring up, and you know, Louise kind of touched on it with the Suez Canal, is people recognizing when they're in an emergency and not 
you know, not saying, oh, this is just business as usual, the problem will go away. To all too often, if you sit back and think about it for long enough, that's what happens. The problem goes away. Yeah. In some of these cases, and certainly now, I think what has happened is it's kind of almost a new form of Darwinism. And, you know, the, the pandemic that we've all been, uh, you know, living the dream through mm. um, over the last, you know, let's say 20 months, um, has really started to show the cracks in the fabric of what we've been doing. And, yeah. you know, this kind of, this concept of just in time, you know, delivery and, you know, manufacturing and, and logistics. And I'm not experts in those industries, but, you know, we're all affected by them. I, lo I look at my, my bakery, you know, my cafe downstairs, you know, the bakery turns up with the croissants at six o'clock in the morning not at five to eight when I want one. But yet, yet much of our industry is designed around that five to eight when, when Rowan wants a croissant, let's get it to him. And that's not, uh, that's not a great way to be when it all goes uh, sideways on you. And I think the sewers issue with the, uh, the boat trying to do a U-turn, as it were, you know, kind of showed that up. I mean, we live on a sphere, right? Um, if you can't go one way, you can turn around and go the other, generally speaking. Um, and yet there were a whole lot of, a whole lot of ships that just joined the queue and sat and waited. And we, we talked about, I mean, this, it's interesting, this, this resilience that industries that we were just discussing, Louise, healthcare, education, retail, manufacturing have had to uh, develop. Do you think really that COVID has exposed, sticking with you, Rowan, has exposed this shallow nature of this term best practice that has been on the tins for you know billion dollar billion dollar tech solutions for 20 years and then comes the big test. Look, I think so. And I, I think also that it's not also about the systems, but it's about the processes and, and the policies indeed, strategies that are in place. And ultimately that that all comes down to people. And you know, people sitting back saying we want to return to normal. Well, do we? Wouldn't, shouldn't we make the most of this crisis and say, let's make the place a better place to live in as a society generally by taking some of the learnings from the pandemic and how what we've done and how we've reacted in, in a personal way and make the place a better place to live? That's what I would have thought, rather than just a return to normal and this is how it was two years ago and, and, and that was the, the nirvana that everybody seems to be looking for. And I'm, I'm not convinced that's necessarily the best approach. We've, we've found that there are more important things in life. And, you know, uh, as much as um, I'm sure lots of families want their kids to go back to school, the time that's been spent as families, rather than flying around all over the place and spending half your life in airports, has got to be a good thing. I think we've got to be better off for it. We've just can't forget to remember the lessons that we've learned um, and I think that's what we tend to forget, a la, you know, GFC, a la the recession of the, you know, the 80s and 90s and all of that kind of stuff. I think we've forgotten a lot of those lessons and, um, and COVID has brought those back to, to show us the, the weaknesses in our society. Yeah, it sure has. And Louise, some, just picking up on, on something that you mentioned a bit earlier at the top of the program, this concept of supply chain control towers. Can you Explain to me, unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, it's it's a concept that's been around for a while. I mean, we've seen it in manufacturing, but it's it's expanding out into other areas such as supply chain towers, um, but also thinking about you can think of long any kind of industry. And this is about having that, that visibility across the, the supply chain. So um, supply chains are made up of a network of connections. So making sure that all those connections are feeding into a, a central, not necessarily location, but a central processing unit that you can ensure that you can make 
great decisions at in real time. So mm-hmm. think about a, a control tower in an airport. It's watching the planes coming in, making sure coordinating and orchestrating those movements so the planes don't crash into each other. They can land most efficiently. And that's what a supply chain um, control tower is about. It's about ensuring that you've got visibility of where all the components and the mechanisms are, what they're doing at a certain point in time, what speed they're going at, you know, what sort of, what are they consuming in terms of resources? Is there any kind of a hiccup occurring? Is there something that's blocking that from getting through? And it's about creating safety also for for those in the supply chain. So think of it, if, if you can convert it to um, an airport control tower, you think along the same lines for a supply chain. It's about creating efficiency, it's about creating safety, and it's about making sure that things get in on time and you can quickly change. So an airport control tower, you could divert a plane to another airport if there was something on the runway. So it's the same principle where Rowan was talking about, you know, why don't they, why don't they go in another direction that's the same concept with a supply chain tower. Yes, and, and you think that this is something that's been, you're, you're seeing accelerated deployment, more discussion about, you know, this that kind of concept in, in those industries in particular since since COVID as, as a sort of a version of, of best practice in those industries? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely accelerating. And I mean, we saw this, as soon as we start, started to see the hiccups and the roadblocks occurring during COVID, we saw industries react very, very quickly. Um, They were saying that what we did yesterday is not going to work anymore. So, you know, some retailers in particular, thinking about Countdown in New Zealand, they set up dark stores, they set up, you know, e-stores to cope with the influx of online purchasing. The current systems couldn't deal with the up ramp of online commerce. So they actually pivoted very, very quickly to say, what do we need to do? You know, the, the normal thing would be to put people in a queue. So that's not acceptable in a pandemic because people can't come to our stores. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? We, we actually shut down stores and set them up solely for filling those online orders. So that sort of takes big thinking is, you know, that would not be best practice prior to the pandemic. You don't close stores down purely to change your business model but they did that and it was highly successful yeah and Rowan do do you think the term that obviously we gave it a good dressing down at the beginning of the program best practice still has some longevity if perhaps it's rewritten or redefined to take account of a lot of these sorts of you know changes that we've seen occur out of necessity in, in some of these key industries throughout COVID? Uh, David, I think what we need to see with best practice is it becomes minimum practice. You know, it becomes the MVP, if you like. And I mean by that, the minimum viable product, not some uh, footy term. And uh, I, think that's <laughs> to, I think that's where we need to be. If we're going to use best practice in any way, it needs to be the minimum that we do and, and not some nirvana that we hold up as, as you know, hey, away, I look what I've done. I think it just needs to be the, the minimum. And... And I think we also need to have a good, long, hard look at how we manage risk across organisations as well. And, you know, the, the conversation about the control tower there that Louise brought up is, is, a, is a great way of managing risk. But even at a board level, at an executive layer, we need to be seriously talking about risk 
and and working out, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Well, you know, the whole world economy can shut down and we all have to stay home for two years. That's what can happen. So I think uh, we need to really reassess how we, we manage risk right across not only business, but across our society as well, because we've seen seeing what happens when, you know, we get hit by a, a very much unforeseen risk. Yeah. It's interesting, Rowan, you mentioned, you know, the need for there to be, you know, minimal effort. I think that's a good point, but it's an, an interesting point in the conversation, as I mentioned earlier in, in the program, you know, the fact that the vendors are still sticking best practice on all of the tins. And it would seem as though this kind of concept of minimal work is somewhat at odds with the, you know, the commercial imperatives that drive many of the vendors. Do you think in future maybe CIOs will be needing to, or, or are we now advising them to perhaps push back a little bit against vendors that, that are spruiking this best practice terminology, perhaps a little bit, perhaps overusing it or misusing it? Well, I think, well, I think both, both is probably right there, David, uh, overusing and misusing. I think uh, we'll rapidly see a change in the vendor market when the CIOs start to, to push back and say, I'm not interested in best practice. I want to know exactly what you're going to do for me. Because the, the minute you have, uh, you know, any grey areas written into a contract, i.e. will do best practice, trust us, is a, is a setting for disaster. And I would never sign up to anything that said we'll do best practice. It's just not a, it's just a sales gimmick, basically. And, you know, as we've, we've heard in the last half hour or so, what does best practice mean? Well, if it doesn't mean anything. Why have it? It's just becomes then just marketing fluff. And uh, I certainly wouldn't be betting my homestead on some marketing fluff. And uh, I don't think any other CIO should be either. I think you need to be fairly uh, black and white and you need to be sitting back and saying, well, you know, hey, uh, vendor, this is what I need to see and this is how it needs to look like. And, and you need to price in redundancy and resiliency and oh, I want to know what if, and here's a whole lot of risks that we need to take into account when we're, we're doing this deal. And I think even if we're talking about risks and we've, you know, we've spoken about supply chains, if we're buying from our local cafes more often, maybe we should be buying from our local IT vendors a bit more often too. And, you know, some of these bigger uh, organisations that have relied, particularly in the case of Australia and New Zealand. I mean, we're islands, right? You close the, the international borders and suddenly these big vendors can't get the staff they need. And so there's a risk that we, we probably didn't foresee over the last five or 10 or 15 or 20 years. And I think that's another example of where we need to improve our risk management and our analysis of those risks rather than just ticking a box uh, as we go through the exercise. Yeah. And, and Rowan, I love that analogy that you used earlier about the Tokyo Olympics. If, if best if, if best practice were were allowed to the concept were allowed to flourish in in that particular sporting arena, we wouldn't have any records broken because people would sit on their hands. And so, Louise, something we were discussing recently about organisations endeavouring to have the best practices, or, whatever, or however that term sort of evolves over time, they really need to be asking themselves, well, how often are they are they measuring and reassessing those? those practices for the times that they're in. I mean, something that's we've been really brought home quite sharply in the last two years, right? Yeah, the metric side of it is a big part of it. I actually liked what Brian was saying about the minimal viable um, product, but because mm. actually just before he said that, I put down minimum viable practice. Um, <laughs> and I think, yes. you know, it's, it's in, you know, oh, actually, I just said, but um, I think having that as a core, it, it's you're right, because... Think about things such as SLAs. If you go and ask a customer how important are SLAs to you, well, of course they're going to say it's important. 
So there are minimum things that customers do expect, that, that businesses do expect from their IT teams, that customers expect, that the support teams expect. But then, you know, you, you got the stuff that wraps around it that makes it particular and fit for purpose in a particular organisation. So if you are looking at something like that to create a best practice model like that, which has got a, it's got a fixed component and then it's got a variable component, you need to have the metrics in place to ensure that it, A, that it is fit for purpose, but also is it still consistently providing the, the best practice that is fit for your organisation if the conditions change. So doing a whole lot of things such as scenarios around that best practice, what would happen what would happen if um, we had some other disruption, whether it's another pandemic or some disaster? How is that going to impact the metrics? How is that going to impact um, how you perform? But also, how is it going to impact your customers? So I think that is something that often gets left behind is, is the metric side of it. So we're following best practice. Don't you know? We're going to measure it based on those best practice rules. But what about all the other stuff that you've got wrapped around it? You know, the stuff that makes it special for your organization. And I think the one thing that we probably haven't talked about is the ethics components of best practice. Is yes. best practice fit for um, what is happening socially um, around the world in terms of climate change, in terms of sustainability, in terms of diversity and inclusion, um, you know, it, that's why things such as best practice uh, need to be reviewed constantly. They need to make, you need to make sure that they are still relevant in today's world. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Ryan? Oh, it's pretty hard to disagree with uh, <laughs> Louise's eloquency there. I mean, I look, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, all of our systems and processes need to be kept up to date. I, you know, I say when I'm, you know, giving some presentations that there's no point having 21st century systems managed with 19th century processes. And, you know, every CIO and every executive that I talk to laments legacy systems. And, and these are things that were built 20 years ago and haven't been updated for various reasons. Mm. Um, you know, I think we need to be doing away with that kind of stuff and keeping ourselves very agile as society around us changes. And sometimes, as we've seen in the pandemic, it's rapid change. You know, imagine three years ago, if I'd sat here and said, I'm going to send the whole government home to work from home for the next two years you would have thought I was certifiable. Yeah. Um, but it happened and it happened in like three weeks. Yeah. So um, we've got to be prepared for rapid change and we've got to make sure that that rapid change doesn't leave anyone behind because we just can't, we just can't do that. And ethics are, are, are just amazingly important and are becoming more so as we go down a kind of AI and analytics path um, you know, we, we need to be uh, keeping a, being more more aware of, of ethics than we've ever been. Um, and that that is all of that conversation around just because we can, should we? But, you know, from a resiliency and redundancy perspective, we've got to make sure those systems work and we've got to make sure that it's not just a technology solution either. I know early on when, the you know, these the QR codes that we've all grown to love started to proliferate. A friend of mine, mother, is um, uh, has English was a second language. Mm. And, and unfortunately, she's illiterate in that language. She, she can't read and, read and write. So the problem for her, of course, was when she went to Woolworths, which was part of her social outing for the week, yeah. um, she didn't know what to do. She didn't have a smartphone. She was too embarrassed to go and write the, 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 the details down and then say to someone, I can't read this form. So she stopped going out. 
um, she got someone else to do the shopping for her. So, so we've got to make sure that we really, we really are inclusive. And it's, it's about building those processes that are inclusive, not just a technology solution. Yeah. And, and ultimately, and I've said many, many times that IT is actually not about the technology, it's about the people. Yeah. And, in, in, and we've got to look at the outcomes that we're giving these people that are, at the, at the, that are using these systems, whether they be internal or external clients, um, and have that as part of the design process rather than just a bolt-on. And, and that's where this ethics conversation that Louise brought up comes in, absolutely. And it should form part of every technology conversation. Yeah. And, and Rowan, earlier you mentioned submarines. Just as a, as a concluding remark, the cheeky journalist in me can't, can't resist saying, uh, let's hope whatever best practices the Australian Defence Force are using over the last... 30 years in building Australia submarines gets thrown out the window in the next in the years to come. Thanks so much, guys. Really, really fun conversation and, and I think an important one at this time. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Thanks, Rowan. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Well, is COVID-19 really as transformative as many people, especially vendors, suggest? Or was it more like a scramble? Still demanding a proper reset of strategy and priorities to extract real value from new and ongoing technology investment. In our next episode, we'll be taking a look back at how the pandemic reshaped digital strategies in Australia, what opportunities were taken and missed along the way, and what should tech leaders be doing to support their organisations for a new and uncertain future. We hope you can join us.